You're listening to an audio sermon from Sovereign Grace Church Toronto. For more information, visit sovgracesto.org. Please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're continuing our series in the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, in this series called Gospel Culture in God's Household. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 1 today. In about two weeks, I'll be flying down to Orlando, Florida, along with really the, all, our entire leadership team here at Sovereign Grace Church Toronto and, and uh, our wives as well, to attend our annual Sovereign Grace Pastors Conference now, if you know me, you'll know that I'm not a big conference guy. I've never been to um, Together for the Gospel, never been to a Gospel Coalition U.S. conference. Um, I don't tend to prioritize conferences in my annual schedule, but I make an exception for the Sovereign Grace Pastors Conference because uh, the Lord has used these conferences uh, through the last six years of my life to not only form my understanding of what it means to function as a pastor, but how I function as a Christian. And it really has been a privilege to to go every year. This will be my sixth consecutive year uh, going down to this conference. Now, one of the sermons I remember vividly was a sermon that C.J. Mahaney, the founder of our movement, of our family of churches, preached three years ago in 2016. He preached on Psalm 126, Uh, A wonderful little psalm, it's just a few verses long, uh, but he preached it with all his might, and I still remember uh, many of the things that he said. Uh, But the most important lesson that I took home from that sermon uh, was simply this. Never lose the awe of your own conversion. Or if I would try to say that like CJ, never lose the awe of your own Conversion. It doesn't matter if you grew up in a non-Christian or a Christian household. All of us needed to be converted. All of us were dead in our trespasses and sins. All of us needed new life that comes only through grace in, that, that's poured out to us through Christ. If you're a Christian... Nothing is more glorious than the simple reality that you are a Christian. Since that sermon three years ago, I've made it a regular habit of not losing the awe of my own conversion. And I try to do that by thanking God for saving me. I spend some time reflecting on who I was before I came to Christ. A proud, selfish disrespectful, worldly young man who craved the approval of other people. And then I spend some time reflecting on the glorious reality that Jesus died for me. He died for me when I was living for the world. He purchased me when I was a willing slave to sin. He loved me when I hated him. I have found that when I make it a habit of remembering my conversion, something marvelous happens in my soul. I show more grace to those around me. 
I experience the comfort of God's love, and I experience more joyful expressions of worship. And that's what our text today really is all about. The Apostle Paul has opened his first letter to Timothy with instructions on what it takes to build a gospel culture in God's household, which is the church. And here in verses 12 to 17, Paul gets to the heart of gospel culture. The heart of gospel culture is nothing less than the gospel itself. But the wonderful thing about our text today is that as Paul reviews the gospel, he doesn't just do so as a set of propositions. He's not just reciting creeds. He's not just talking about realities that happened out there. He rehearses the gospel in the context of his own life. For him, the gospel wasn't just a theological idea. It was a transformative reality a saving message of grace that had changed him into a completely new man. So with that said, let's read our text today together. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 17. This is the word of the Lord. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The title of this sermon is The Heart of Gospel Culture. The Heart of Gospel Culture. My aim today is to show you that the more we know our sin, the more we know our Savior. The more we know our sin, the more we know our Savior. We're going to break up our text into three points today. First, Jesus saves sinners. Second, Jesus transforms sinners. And third, Jesus sends sinners. Jesus saves, transforms, and sends sinners. First point, Jesus saves sinners. The context, as we saw two weeks ago, is that Paul has just been explaining the right use of the law in verses 8 to 11. He explained that the law's primary function is no longer to guide the Christian. It is to convict and restrain the non-Christian. Now that Christ has come, the center of the Christian faith is no longer the law, like it was for the Jews before Christ. It is now the gospel, what Christ has done in his person and work by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. The gospel has completely redefined how the Christian lives. We no longer live under the old way of the written code. 
but in the new way of the spirit. Now this doesn't mean that the law, that is the, the moral laws summarized in the Ten Commandments and more fully revealed in the first five books of the Old Testament, it doesn't mean that those, those parts of scripture are irrelevant to the Christian life. They're not. They are very much still relevant. But the law has ceased to function as an end in itself. Rather, it now serves as a means to the greater end of pointing us to Christ, that we might trust in him for salvation and rely on him to obey God's revealed will in the scriptures. That is why Paul ends his reflections on the law with a statement about the gospel in verse 11. He says that the law is now to be understood and applied in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. You know, for Paul, the gospel was a glorious revelation about who God is, that he is the blessed God, the God who pours out his blessings richly for those who are united to Christ by faith. And he was deeply aware that this gospel, this gospel of the blessed God had been entrusted to him. And that leads to our text today in verses 12 to 17. These verses contain a personal and profoundly beautiful reflection of how Paul came to be transformed by the gospel and how he came to be entrusted with the gospel. Two main themes run through these verses. The first theme is the person of Jesus Christ himself. Now notice that since Paul opened his letter with his greetings in verses one to two where he mentions uh, Christ Jesus our hope and he talks about grace, mercy, and peace flowing to Timothy through Christ Jesus our Lord, he doesn't mention Jesus at all. In verses three to 11, his business is giving instructions to Timothy in how he should uh, put the household of God, which is the church, in order. This is how you do it, Timothy. This is how you do it. This is how you put the household of God in order. But now that Paul is about to retell his testimony of conversion, he makes it absolutely clear that it is all about Jesus. These are rich in Christological content. Verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 14, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Verse 16, but I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. Jesus was and continues to be the main character in Paul's story of salvation. Just like Jesus Christ is the main character in each of our stories of salvation. We didn't save ourselves. Christ was the one who saved us. And yet when you think about how you tend to tell your testimony, you know, you're telling other people, whether it's fellow Christians or unbelieving family and friends, how you became a Christian, you know, often it's, well, I was running away from God, but then I realized that, you know, Life can't be happy without Christ. So then a friend invited me to a conference and I went there and I listened to the sermon and then I went up and responded to the altar call and I received Jesus into my heart as my savior. Well, my friends, that's not how you were saved. 
You weren't saved because of all the things that you did to get Jesus into your heart. You were saved because of all the things that God did to get Jesus into your heart. Two weeks ago, I was at our biannual in-person meetings with the Council of the Gospel Coalition Canada. Uh, One of the things we did was we asked our three newest council members to share their testimonies. And in response, one of these men said, I'll begin my testimony the same way I teach my church to begin their testimonies. I was predestined before the foundation of the world. The room erupted with laughter and amens because we loved him. We, we love that he, he acknowledged, he wasn't afraid to, to declare that God was the one who saved him even before he had breathed a single breath of life. God is the one who saves us. He predestines us, he calls us, he regenerates us, he justifies us, he sanctifies us, he glorifies us. Yes, God uses means to save us, our family and friends, For Timothy, it was his grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice. For Paul, it was a blinding encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. But those are just the means. They are not the cause. To focus on the means would be to give all the glory to the tools and to completely neglect the builder who wields them. None of us are saved because our friends shared the gospel with us or because we accepted Jesus into our hearts. We're saved because Jesus Christ himself reached down into our darkness and pulled us into the light of his grace. Jesus is the hero of our stories. Jesus is the cause of our conversion. That's the first theme in these verses. The second theme is about Paul. It's about Paul's sinfulness, and that starts in verse 13. He says, formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Now Paul doesn't want us to forget who he was before Jesus saved him, because he certainly hasn't forgotten. He was a blasphemer. It's a person who speaks irreverent, disrespectful, false things about God. Now you might wonder, well, how could that be? You know, Paul was a devout, pious Jew. He was a leading Pharisee. He, he, he was very careful in the words that he said about God. He knew the Ten Commandments. He knew that he wasn't supposed to take the name of the Lord in vain, but yet he calls himself a blasphemer. How could that be? Well, it's because of the things he said about Jesus Christ. In John chapter 5, verse 23, Jesus himself said, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Paul had come to realize that it didn't matter how many right words he said about the God that he believed in by his understanding, by his reading of the scriptures. If he spoke a single word against the Son of God, he was a blasphemer. Next, he calls himself a persecutor, an insolent opponent, As a persecutor, he's describing what he did. He tried to destroy the church. As an insolent opponent, he's describing his attitude. He was violent and aggressive. He wasn't just committed to destroying Christianity through arguments and persuasion. He was committed to destroying Christianity through violence and aggression. He writes about this himself. uh, Well, he describes this recorded by Luke in Acts 26. He says, I myself was convinced 
that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul wants us to know that this is who he was before Jesus saved him. He was the furthest thing from a Christian that you or I could imagine. An enemy of the cross, not just in thought, but in deed. Now Paul summarizes his opposition and his brokenness and fallenness and sinfulness in verse 15 when he calls himself the foremost of sinners of whom I am the foremost. Now this word foremost is literally the first. He is the first of sinners. He's saying if there were a competition for who is the greatest sinner in the world, I would take first place. No one's a bigger sinner than me. No one is worse than me. I am as bad as they come. Now notice that he's not just talking about who he used to be. He's talking about who he continues to be. He doesn't say, I was the foremost. He says, I am the foremost. I am the foremost. He's speaking in the present tense. Well, is he a new creation in Christ? Yes, he is. Are his sins not washed white as snow? Well, absolutely they are. But in Paul's mind, that doesn't change his perception of himself as a sinner. Or as the New City Catechism puts it, he is still, he, he is still aware that he is still inclined to all evil. He is rebellious against God in his natural self. He knows that he is still capable of grievous sin. He knows that if he did it once, he can do it again, which is why he so desperately needs Christ. That's the second theme. The first theme is Christ and his saving work, and the second theme is Paul and his sinfulness. Now, if we were to leave here and believe that that's all these verses are about, we would have missed the point. Because these verses aren't just about Paul, they're about all of us. Now, Paul makes that clear in verse 15, where he doesn't just say, I'm the foremost of sinners, and Christ Jesus came into the world to save me, and I'm the worst sinner. Now, he says in verse 15 that this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Now, that's a really key phrase here, and it helps us to understand what he's getting at in his argument here culminating in verse 15. He's saying that that when he quotes these words, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, he's not creating those words himself. He's not penning those words as the original author. He's quoting those words. This phrase was already a common saying in the early church, likely from a creed or a catechism or a hymn. Christians everywhere were using this phrase. It was a saying where they rehearsed the gospel, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and then they applied it to themselves, of whom I am the foremost. Paul is endorsing that saying, not only by applying it to himself, but saying this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. He's saying, you want to know what the motto of Christianity is? 
Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. He wants this phrase to be on the lips and in the hearts of Christians everywhere. He wants us to believe, I am the worst sinner I know. When we walk into a room full of people, he wants us to know that I am the worst sinner here. How how do we do that? And you may be wondering, well, how do you make that calculation? You know, we want mathematical precision. Well, that person is probably a little bit more sinful than me. I'm pretty bad, but that person's worse. Well, this is not a matter of mathematical precision. It's a matter of the attitude of your heart. John Stott helpfully writes this. For Paul had not investigated the sinful and criminal records of all the inhabitants of the world, carefully compared himself with them, and concluded that he was worse than them all. The truth is rather that when we are convicted of sin by the Holy Spirit, an immediate result is that we give up all such comparisons. Paul was so vividly aware of his own sins that he could not conceive that anybody could be worse. It is the language of every sinner whose conscience has been awakened and disturbed by the Holy Spirit. This isn't about knowing others' sins. It's about knowing our own and being so convicted by our own sinfulness that we can say, I am the foremost. Now, if we would leave today and linger just on that truth that we are each the foremost of sinners and we need to adopt that attitude, we would have also missed the point because that's only half of the saying that is uh, worthy of use, that is deserving of full acceptance. The other half, gloriously, is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom we are the foremost And so when we walk into a room and remind ourselves that we're the worst sinner in the room, the point isn't just to put ourselves down. The point is to be lifted up in worship because Jesus Christ has come into the world to save us. The Son of God himself has come into our broken world, entered time as a human being, dying in our place on the cross so that everyone who trusts in him as Lord and Savior can be saved from God's judgment and transferred into his marvelous kingdom. Those are the truths that we are called to be reminded of every time we are reminded of our own sin. It could be when we sin against our young child, when we're fed up with their tantrum, and we realize I shouldn't have spoken to them like that, And you say, "Ah, how horrible of a parent I am, how sinful and broken I am. That's only half the saying. The full saying is Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners like me. First place sinners like me. I am the worst, but Christ came to save the worst. Jesus saved sinners. And the glorious reality is that no sinner is beyond the reach of his grace. But what does Jesus do with these saved sinners? Now this leads to our second point, Jesus transforms sinners. Now notice the contrast between verses 13 and 14. In verse 13, Paul says that he was a blasphemer, persecutor, and 
insolent opponent. You could sum it up as he was angry and he was full of hatred. He was an angry man. He was consumed by hatred towards these people who he believed were leading his own people astray. His purpose in life was to see Christians die. You know, Acts chapter 9 says that he was breathing. He was breathing threats and murder. The purpose of his life had become the destruction of Christianity, the persecution of the followers of Christ. One commentary describes him as follows. He was a religious predator. Callous, pious, self-righteous, bigoted murderer, hell-bent on a full-scale inquisition. Now you contrast that with verse 14, where Paul says, the grace of our Lord overflowed from me with the faith in the what? And the love, the love that are in Christ Jesus. Being united to Christ, his life was no longer characterized by hatred and anger. It was characterized by love. A love that no doubt sprung from the soil of verse 5. You remember what he says about love. Love issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's what Christ had done in his life. That's what the power of the gospel had accomplished in his heart. He had a love that filled his life from an overflow of grace as Jesus himself poured his limitless love into Paul's loveless heart. That's what Jesus does. That's what Jesus has done for you. If you are a Christian today, he transforms people who are characterized by hatred and turns them into people who are characterized by love. Love for God, love for neighbor, even love for enemies. You know, the reality of this gospel-infused love is that it cannot be defeated even by the hatred of others. It is an invincible love. It is a limitless love that comes from the limitless supply of our Savior. This is the love, my friends, that is meant to characterize a church. This is the kind of love that makes a church embody gospel culture. It's not the conditional love of the world that says, I'll love you so long as you do this for me. As long as it's reciprocal. As long as you're serving some need of mine, so long as you are loving me, I will love you if you love me. No, this is a love that loves even if people do nothing for you. Because that's the love that Jesus showed to us when Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It is a love that pursues It is a love that forgives. It is a love that never ends. That's not how we tend to love, right? I can think about many times when my wife and I were in an argument or a conflict and what's going through my mind is not love. It's resentment. It's not, I want to move closer to you. It's, I want to move further from you. That's, That's human love. That's what our love looks like, tainted by sin. And that is not what gospel love looks like. Our love for one another fizzles and grows cold until the only thing that brings us together, whether in a home or in a church, is habit, not affection. 
We need the grace of our Lord to overflow into our lives, bringing the love of Christ into our hearts so that we might love one another just as he loved us. That's the first contrast. This contrast between Paul's former hatred and Paul's newfound love. Jesus transforms haters into lovers. There's a second contrast between verses 13 and 14. It's the contrast between unbelief and faith. In verse 13, Paul says, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Unbelief. And then in verse 14, he says, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. His unbelief had been replaced with faith, just as his hatred had been replaced with love. Now, before Paul became a Christian, he's saying he was acting ignorantly in unbelief. What he means by that is he thought he was doing the right thing. Remember in Acts 26, he says, I, was, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things against Jesus of Nazareth and his people. I was convinced that this is what God required of me. His conscience may have been skewed, but at least it was clean. He was acting according to what he believed was right. Now that doesn't mean that he wasn't responsible for his sins. Ignorance is no excuse, both in our laws today and in God's laws for eternity. He still needed Christ. He's still saying Christ Jesus came into the world to save me for my sins of blasphemy, my sins of persecution, my sins of being an insolent opponent. But he is saying that when God looked upon his sin, he took his ignorance into account. Now there are implications here that I've thought about and do not quite have clarity on. But I think one clear implication we need to draw is that God does not treat all sins the same. There are sins committed in ignorance and there are sins committed in knowledge. There are sins committed because you don't yet know what is right and there are sins committed that you do even when you know that what you're doing is wrong. There is warning here for those who would sin in a high-handed manner, doing what they know is wrong. And so the Christian life here is summarized by two things, by faith and by love. That is the essence of what the Christian life looks like. Unbelief replaced with faith, hatred replaced with love. And Paul's saying here in verse 14 that the only way that it's possible for us to experience and enjoy and apply these Attributes is through the grace of our Lord overflowing to us. We must drink from this steady stream of grace. We must come to Christ and receive what we do not have for ourselves. And so the question for us is, are are you thirsty for faith today? Do you doubt God's goodness or doubt God's love for you? Or are you thirsty for love today where you, all you experience is bitterness towards those who wrong you and this gospel-saturated, gospel-infused love seems so far from your experience that it feels impossible? Then come to Christ for you will always find more faith and love to fill your empty and weary Heart. I love how Paul says that the grace of our Lord overflowed. It overflowed. It didn't just fill. It more than filled. It 
overflowed. It was not just abundant, it was super abundant. It was more than I needed. Christ's streams of grace, they never run dry. They overflow. Not against us like God's floods of judgment, but for us in mercy. Like a cleansing tide. Washing over us completely. So don't, when you feel yourself lacking in faith or in love, don't try to summon it out of the reserves of your own heart. Doing that is like sipping from a shrinking puddle of water in the middle of a hot day. Instead, come and drink from the waterfalls of grace that await you in Christ and see how he provides for your weary soul. Jesus saves sinners. Jesus transforms sinners. And lastly, Jesus sends sinners, leading to our final point. Jesus sends sinners. Paul reflects on this in verse 12 where he writes that Christ judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Now this isn't a faithfulness that Paul had in himself. Now Jesus didn't look Paul up and down and conclude, okay, he's faithful enough to serve as my apostle. You know, Paul, who, he, who was he? He was a persecutor of the church. He was the foremost of sinners. This isn't a faithfulness that he had as a prerequisite before Jesus called him to his service. Paul acknowledges this himself when he says in verse 12 that this ministry was only possible because Christ had given him strength. I thank him who has given me strength. And why does he need strength? Because he's too weak. He's insufficient for the tasks that Christ has given to him. The point then is simply this. When Jesus judges someone faithful, he makes them faithful so that his judgment of their faithfulness would be proven right. Let me say that again. When Jesus judges someone faithful, he makes them faithful so that his judgment of their faithfulness ultimately proves to be right. If you want a tongue twister for that saying, it's he faithfully makes his faithful ones faithful. He faithfully makes his faithful ones faithful. What is it that Paul is to be faithful in doing? Well, the answer is in verse 11, where he writes that he has been entrusted with the gospel. Jesus has appointed Paul to his service as an apostle, to be an authoritative herald of the gospel and a guardian of sound doctrine. That's what Paul is to be faithful in doing. He is to take the good news of the gospel to the nations around him. That is his role. That is what Christ has appointed him to do. Now, what about you? Do you believe that Christ has appointed you to his service? You may not be an apostle or a pastor or a teacher of the Bible, but that doesn't change the fact that your role was given to you by Christ. If you belong to Jesus, you've been appointed by him to his service. It doesn't matter if you're a stay-at-home mom or a student or a professional, or you work in the trades, if you belong to Jesus, then he has given you your assignment. And the only way you can be faithful in carrying out that assignment to the glory of Christ your Savior is if he gives you strength. Now we need to remember that though none of us share the same role as Paul, not even me, I'm not an apostle, He's called to be an apostle. I'm called to be a pastor. Those two things are different. None of us share the same role, but all of us share the same goal, to spread the good news of the gospel, to share with as many people as we can that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, 
of whom we are the foremost. And we do that by the way that we use our money, the causes that we choose to support. We do that by the way that we use our time, the people that we choose to invest in. But most importantly, we do that by the churches that we join and the churches that we serve with because as Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter three, it is the church. It is the church that is a pillar and buttress of the truth. The reality is that there are no more apostles. There are no more divinely gifted men entrusted with the proclamation and protection of the gospel. All we have today, my friends, is what we see here. The local church, its pastors and its people. We collectively are entrusted with the gospel to proclaim it and to protect it. What was once entrusted to the apostles is now entrusted to the local church. And together we are called to steward the gospel by our words and by our lives and by the culture that we have in our church. That was something that Paul was very much aware of. He knew that he wouldn't just bear witness to Christ through the testimony of his apostolic ministry. He would also bear witness through the testimony of his conversion. That's what he talks about in verse 16. He says, the reason why he received mercy was so that Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul's saying, do you want to know what Jesus is like? Then look at my life. Look at what Jesus has done for me. Look at how Jesus held back his hand of judgment so that I could repent and believe. If you're a Christian today, that is your testimony as well. Think of who you were before Christ saved you. Every time you sinned, you deserved to die. Every time you sinned, you deserved to face the eternal fires of God's punishment. Every day that you lived, you spent running away from God and rebelling against his will. Every day was a day that you deserved hell. But that is not what you received. Christ, the judge, stayed his hand so that you could know him as Christ, the Savior. Our sins, they may be great, but our Savior is greater. If Christ showed perfect patience for Paul, the blasphemer, the persecutor, the insolent opponent, if Christ showed mercy to Josh Tong, the arrogant, selfish lover of the world, how much more will he show mercy to you? We serve a patient savior, one who waits for us to turn to him, one who holds back his hand of judgment so that we can be saved. And once we are saved, it is our privilege to go out into the world with the word of the gospel and with the word of our testimonies to show the world just how patient Christ is. It's amazing enough that Jesus saves us and he transforms us. It is beyond comprehension that he sends us, that he uses us, that he displays his glory in broken vessels like us. The only appropriate response to all of this is is worship. And that's what Paul does. Verse 12, he gives thanks to Christ. I thank him who has given me strength and pointed me to his service. 
He's thankful for a job that he knows exceeds his resume. He doesn't deserve this role. And then after reflecting on his testimony, on the miracle of his conversion, he erupts in worship in verse 17, declaring to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul knew that Jesus doesn't just strengthen us, save us, send us. Jesus is the king. Not just now, but forever, for all ages. Paul knew that the one who came into the world to save sinners was also, is also the immortal, invisible God. The one who saved the foremost of sinners is the God of the universe. There is no God like him. He is the only God and he deserves honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So do you see now why the gospel is at the heart of gospel culture? The biggest problem in the world can be summed up in this, in human pride, in the fact that people live to make much of themselves, to feed their egos, to spread their influence and reputation so that people will look at them and honor them. They want the world to see how smart they are, how attractive they are, how superior they are to others. That's, that is what poisons cultures. That's what kills communities. Because when people don't give you the respect you think you deserve, you're out. If people won't stroke your ego, then they're irrelevant. Pride kills communities. But what the gospel does is it takes proud sinners and turns them into humble Servants. The gospel takes people who are passionate about themselves and makes them passionate about Christ. It turns them away from the worship of self to the worship of their Savior. And if our desire is for Christ alone to receive honor and glory, it doesn't matter if we're overlooked, if we remain unacknowledged. If Christ receives the honor, then we are content. Gospel culture begins with gospel doctrine because only the gospel can transform sinners, proud, arrogant sinners, into humble worshipers. If we get this wrong, there is zero chance that we're going to enjoy a gospel culture in our church. We would have failed before we even began. We might have a facade of it. We're really nice to one another, but there is a world of difference between niceness and gospel love. One shows kindness out of convenience. The other shows kindness out of sacrifice. If we build a facade of love, we'll be building on a foundation of sand where the first instance of crisis will blow our house down. But if we get it right, if we get gospel love that flows from Christ's love for us, right. If we get it right, then I believe that God can do great things through our church for many, many years to come. May we never lose the awe of our own conversions. My friends, may we never forget that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom we are the foremost. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, 
the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, your word says, and this is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Thank you, Father, that we do not find in ourselves the reference point for love, but we find in you the reference point for love. May grace overflow to us, turning our hatred into love, turning our unbelief into faith, that we might display for the world the perfect patience that each of us has experienced through conversion. And Father, if there are any here who do not yet trust in Christ, who are still strangers to your covenant, who are alienated from your presence, may they taste the gospel in our church, in its culture and its doctrine, and come to believe that though they may be the foremost of sinners, Christ is a worthy and sufficient Savior. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.